Good morning, Calvary Church. It's good to see you guys today. My name is Tim. I'm the pastor of students here at Calvary Church, and it is great to be with you this Sunday morning. Uh, You may know we are doing a short series in the parables of Jesus, the stories from everyday life that Jesus told to show us a spiritual truth. And today we're going to look at one of the most famous parables. In fact, it's one of the most famous stories in Western literature in the whole world. Um, And so I'd be surprised if you hadn't heard at least some version of this before. It's right up there with Noah's Ark, Jonah and the whale, and the prodigal son. And it goes something like this. Jesus told a story. He said, there was a man who went on a journey, traveling down from Jerusalem towards Jericho on a lonely and dangerous road. Now on that road, he was ambushed by robbers who beat him, who stripped him, who robbed him and left him there for dead. Now by chance, a priest passed by him along the road, but instead of helping, he passed to the other side and left him and continued on his way. By an even greater chance, a Levite, a temple uh, temple worker, also came along that way, and instead of helping, he too crossed to the other side of the road and continued on his way, leaving the man for dead. But a Samaritan, hated by the Jewish people, also came along that road. And when he saw the man, he stopped and he had compassion. And he cared for the man. He bound his wounds. He gave him food and drink. He carried him to a nearby inn where he could be restored to health. He paid for his tab and and left money behind for anything he needed until he had recovered. And Jesus ends this story by saying, who was the neighbor to the beaten man? It was this good Samaritan. I think you've probably heard this story. Um, As I said, it's really really common, really famous. And the the moral, if you will, that's usually put into something like this, that there is a good Samaritan, that is a person who is a friendly stranger who stops by and shows kindness where it wouldn't necessarily be expected. It comes from an unexpected source. And that is true. This parable talks about that. We even have laws that are named after this good Samaritan, good Samaritan laws about helping a stranger in need. But The story, this parable, is a great example of our need to look at what's around a story to get the full meaning. When I was looking at this, I realized I knew this story, but I didn't know who Jesus was talking to. I didn't know what question he was responding to or what kind of uh, dialogue is taking place. And so today, we want to make sure we're asking the right questions of the Good Samaritan and of this parable. We want to make sure we're looking at what Jesus is doing, who he's talking to. Who Jesus tells this story to, and most importantly, why. If we ask the wrong questions, we're going to get the wrong answers. So today we want to make sure that we can find the right questions to ask from this familiar story. So let's turn and read it from God's Word itself. This is in Luke chapter 10. We're going to be starting in verse 25 and reading all the way through verse 37. This is God's Word. Uh, Behold, a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. 
So likewise, a Levite, when he came to that place, saw him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Let's pray together, church. Father, we thank you for the gift of your church that we can gather together. I'm more thankful for your word, that you have given us the, the way to know you and to know how we should live. Father, I pray today you would guide us into understanding and wisdom as we look to your word to understand what we must do to be saved. Father, I pray you be with the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts today, that they would be pleasing and acceptable in your eyes. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As we saw, Jesus tells this story, this parable, in a conversation with a lawyer. This is not a legal scholar. It's a scholar of God's word, of the Old Testament, who approaches him to ask him a question. And the lawyer is going to ask two questions in this passage. He's going to ask a good question and a bad question. He's going to ask both of them with the wrong motives. He's coming at Jesus to test him, to prove himself, and probably in some way to disprove Jesus, maybe to discredit him. As an expert, he's come on to this guy who has no training, who's just sort of a popular teacher, to kind of see what he's got, see if he knows what he's talking about. And his first question, his good question, is, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, despite the motives, Jesus affirms this is a really good question. He is asking, essentially, what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to enter into God's kingdom, to receive this eternal promise of God's blessing and being with God? What we would call, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? This is a really good question. This is a question that we all should be asking, and it's at the heart of what the Bible is for, to teach us how to know God, to teach us how to be with God. What does it mean? What must I do to be saved? It's the million-dollar question. Now, in answer to this, Jesus, as he often does, doesn't give you the straight answer like you would want him to do, and he gives you another question, because he's going deeper. He's diving into why you're asking the question and what's really at stake here. He answers with another question. He says, well, what does the law say? You're the scholar. You're the expert. So tell me, what does it say, and what does it mean? And to this, the the, the lawyer replies with a really good answer. He turns to the Old Testament and delivers its meaning. Uh, We should say as a real quick aside here, Jesus affirms the Old Testament. Jesus points back to the the old Jewish scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament, and says, this is where the truth is. I'm not giving you something new. I'm just showing you what is there. I'm showing you how God's word has consistently always told us the way to be saved. And as Jesus is going to show us, the lawyer knows his Bible well, maybe better than we do, and he answers correctly. He points to two passages that Jesus and other places would call the greatest two commandments. He turns to Deuteronomy 6, 5, and Leviticus 19, 18. These are what we often call the greatest and the second greatest commandments, and they summarize the entirety of God's law. If you want to know what God tells us we must do, what kind of people we must be, it's summed up, it's boiled down in these two compact commandments, which is kind of amazing. This is in Luke 10, 27. 
He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the heart of what the Bible teaches us. And it is the correct answer. This is the way to eternal life. We must love God with our entire being. And we must love him above anything and everything else. So let's take a minute. Let's pause before we get into the parables. Look at these commandments, because this is at the heart of what they're talking about here. We must love the Lord, as Deuteronomy 6, 5 tells us. Deuteronomy gives us three parts of ourselves that we have to love God with all of our being. Um, these three elements. And, and Luke, the doctor, when he's putting this together, he actually adds a fourth there. And he's not adding to what the Bible says. He's kind of explaining. He's taking a Hebrew word and saying it has two meanings. And so I'm going to use two other Greek words to explain what it is. So he takes the word heart in Deuteronomy and says, well, that really means heart and mind. That's why we have four instead of three. Um, and these together, the heart, the soul, the strength, and the mind, picture the entire person, pictures everything we are, So we have to keep that in mind, but it's also worth looking at each of the four and seeing what does it mean. The heart speaks to our emotions, what we feel, what we love. Um, Our feelings are changed when we follow God. Our feelings are directed towards God. We have genuine affection for him. We want to be near him. We want to be um, uh, angled our lives. We want to uh, uh, direct our lives toward him entirely. We want more of him. We love what he says. We love his law. We love his presence. We love God with all of our emotions and our feelings. The soul is our consciousness. This is what it means to be a person. This is what it means to be ourself and not just another human being. It's what makes us us, our identity. Our very person becomes defined and shaped by God and by loving God. Before we do anything else, we are a child of God. We are a follower of Jesus. And rather than a loss, rather than like losing things to become a follower of Jesus, this is gaining everything, to have our identity defined by God. This is what we were meant to be. When we left God, when we fell into sin, we lost something of ourselves, something of our soul. And by following God, that is restored to us. We become more human, more ourselves when we follow God and belong wholly to him. We are restored and renovated. This is loving God with all our soul. Our strength talks about our effort, our, our ability to do something, our, our power to act in the world. Everything we can put into it, every bit of effort that we can direct towards anything should be directed towards following God, towards knowing him. When we are weary, when we feel like our legs are going to give out, when, when night is falling, when we are at our last bit of strength, everything goes to following and pursuing God and who he is until we are about to collapse. We love him with all of our strength. And then our mind is our intelligence, our ability to think, our ability to explore, our intellect seeking to understand what we have uh, followed by faith. Um, The Christian tradition has often spoken of the the discipleship of Jesus as faith-seeking understanding, believing by faith and then seeking to know him more and more each day. We don't have to turn our mind off when we follow God. No, we, we direct our mind towards understanding him little by little each day, knowing him, the infinite knowledge of God. It requires an infinite amount of time studying him, devoting ourselves to knowing him little by little. And we will never reach all of it, right? We will never understand him completely, but we will always be learning, always be seeking him with our mind. As scripture tells us, we are to take every thought captive for Christ. Every thought of ours belongs to him. 
And we are to set our mind on the Spirit, as Romans 8 tells us, instead of sin. To focus our mind on whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, and excellent, as Philippians 4, 8 tells us. And when we take all these together, heart, soul, mind, and strength, we see an entire person without any exception. To love God as, as Scripture requires us requires every piece of ourselves, everything that we are. We cannot hold anything back. We cannot reserve anything. We cannot keep it to ourselves. We give it to him completely. And as we said, this is what we were designed to do. This is what we were built and created to do. The theologian Augustine says to God, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their their rest in you. The only thing that will satisfy, the only thing that will, will fulfill us, that will hold our life, is to be found fully in God. And so through faith in Christ, we are restored to love God rightly, to love the Lord. That is this first and greatest commandment. If you could say one thing about what it means to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, to know God, it is to love him with our whole being. Now, if faith Uh, produces this comprehensive whole person, this transformative love that changes everything about us, then naturally it should lead to a change in our actions, right? If we're changed on the inside, if we're changed in our mind and our soul, then it should change the way we interact with the world around us. And this leads us to the second commandment that the lawyer mentions to us. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is the outworking. This is the pouring out of what is on the inside. The exterior, what we do, is shaped by what we are. And so we love people. Um, and this is, this is required. This is absolutely essential. It is paired in this answer of what the lawyer says on what it requires to receive eternal life. This will be part of our lives if we have found this eternal life, if we have been saved. It is not optional. Loving God leads to loving people. Put another way, loving rightly leads to living rightly. If we love correctly, we will live correctly. Now, this lawyer, despite not knowing Jesus, not a Christian, he's answered wisely. He's summed up what the Old Testament teaches, and Jesus affirms him. He says, yes, by obeying these two commandments, by loving the Lord, by loving others, you will be saved. This is what it means to be a follower of God, a disciple of Jesus. And so he tells him very simply, do this and live. He says, yes, go do it. Yes, go put it into practice. It's, it's remarkably simple. Now, this might sound strange to us if you think about it. This might sound different from what you've heard before uh, as an answer to the question, what does it mean to be saved? And there's other places in the Bible where people answer this differently. When uh, Peter is preaching in the book of Acts, and he's asked, what do I have to do to be saved? He, he answers differently. He says, repent, each of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That's something a little more what we're familiar with. Believe in Jesus and repent, Right? Um, and so compared with this, this answer that the lawyer gives might seem a little works righteous, right? It might seem like, well, if you go and do these things, if you live perfectly and you love perfectly, then, then you're going to earn your way and you're going to earn your, you know, your place with God and be saved. Well, that's not really what this is getting at. That's not really what the Old Testament teaches. And this passage does match with the rest of the New Testament. It does match with the rest of Scripture. Faith in Jesus is the only means of being made right with God, the only means of being saved. And that is what the Old Testament teaches just as much as what Jesus taught us. That has always been the case. It is by faith that we are saved. And our our own best effort um, 
will always not be enough. We will always love something else more than we love God when it's just up to us. We will always love ourselves more than we love God. We will always um, create, uh, look at, at objects and love them more than we love God. This is what we call idolatry. And our obedience, even when we do obey what God teaches us, even though we do act with kindness towards other people, it will always be tainted by this selfish motivation that we are trying to earn our place. We're trying to earn our salvation. And so it's not really, truly obedience. It's always a little bit self-centered. Our best effort's not good enough. Only when Jesus gives us a new heart, and only when Jesus gives us his spirit to transform our soul, transform our mind, can we really do this. Can we really love God wholly? completely, with our whole being. Galatians 5, 6 is a, is a shorthand way of describing this, these two commandments, loving the Lord your God and loving your neighbor. In this, Paul says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. That's our religious works, right? That's our religious markers, our actions that show we are a Christian in a sense, right? That's the things we do. He says, no, only faith working through love. And this is what is this talking about. Faith working through love. Faith in what Jesus has done for us, in who God is and who he has made us to be, in our love that transforms us completely, and then it works through love as we go and we love other people. None of our religious actions counts for anything. Instead, faith in Christ working itself in love saves us. And this is not faith earning its place, but faith expressing what is there. All right, faith expressing what's already there. The Bible gives us many warnings, and if our lives show no love for neighbor, if the second commandment is not there, then we have to question if our faith is genuine, if it's real, if it's living. First John warns, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. We might say he loves God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. If that second piece is missing, we have to really question whether the first piece is there. If we do not love our neighbor, it is likely that we do not rightly love God. By faith, we love God rightly, and this saves us, and it always results in right living. This is the answer to the first question. How can I be saved? Faith working itself in love. So this brings us back to the lawyer. He's heard this answer. He's seen what the Old Testament teaches, but he has a follow-up. He's got question number two that's coming. And we said there was a good question, we said there's a bad question. That would mean, by process of elimination, this is the question that's not so good. It's also the question that we would probably say, like, what's the point of this story? It's like, oh, well, who's my neighbor? Maybe. Let's see. Hint, that probably means I don't think it is, but you know, just letting you guys in there. Um, the lawyer comes, and he's, he's on his heels a little bit, right? He's trying to test Jesus, and Jesus just says, like, well, what does the law say? You're an expert. And he goes, well, it says this. And he says, yeah, great, do it. And so he's kind of like, well, I'm still the important religious scholar here, so I'll ask you a follow-up. Who is my neighbor? Probably pretty tricky there. This is something that the Jewish people disagreed on. There were those who said that all Jews everywhere are our neighbors. Some would say it's only the faithful, it's only my tribe, my group, who are my neighbor. He's trying to turn the situation again. And it says really specifically here that he is desiring to justify himself, Right? He's trying to save face a little bit. We need to bookmark that, come back to that. Um, he's asking again with the wrong motive, looking to justify himself. Um, but this question, who is my neighbor, is not the question he needs to be asking, and it's not the point of the parable. Jesus answers, again, not straightforward, not saying yes or no. He answers with this story, and this brings us to this familiar 
um, time-told um, parable of the Good Samaritan. This story is meant to answer both that wrong question that the, that the scholar throws out there, but also point us to the real question that we should be asking. So let's review this parable again. It's a hypothetical story about a man in need, as we saw. It's not a real thing that really happened. It's a story meant to illustrate a purpose, and we have to keep that in mind. When the man is left on the side of the road, two of the most highly respected people in Jewish society walk by. The priest, who's meant to be the intermediary, the one who goes between God and the people. He's meant to know everything that the law teaches, and he's meant to do it, to be holy as a representative of God to the people. He doesn't help. We don't know why he's not a real person. He's, a, he's meant to illustrate a point. So we don't want to get too into his psyche or anything like that. He doesn't do it. The point is he does nothing. Next, the Levite comes through. A Levite is a temple worker. They're also dedicated their life to the service of God's temple and the service of the people to teach them what they should do. He also does nothing. Crosses to the other side and moves on. What matters here is their inaction. And then secondly, shockingly, we have this Samaritan, the most unexpected person possible. Samaritans had been at odds with the Jews for a long time. They lived farther to the north. And hundreds of years ago, they had departed. They had started to intermix with other peoples, both um, through marriage and, and over time, but also with their practices. They adopted bits of foreign pagan religion and idolatry into their lifestyle. They believed that they were the true expression of worshiping God, and the Jews said, oh no, you're not. It's us. And so they were at odds all the time. They had their own temple. They had their own practice. They just butted heads. They did not like each other. They each viewed each other as the enemy, as the heretic, as worse than the pagans, because you've taken something good and just twisted it and distorted it out of shape. Did not like each other. But here, again, the Samaritan's background doesn't really matter. What matters is his action, is he does something. He helps. He, from compassion— genuine compassion, he acts and he cares for him. He does everything he can. He uses all of his means of disposal, all of the the things he has with him, all of the resources and the money he has to help this man in whatever way possible. And this leads us to the conclusion, the only conclusion possible. Who was the neighbor? And the lawyer, he doesn't even want to say the Samaritan. This is a dirty word. I don't want to admit it. He just says the one who showed him mercy. That's right. That's the only possible answer. But again, notice, it's not the answer he asked for. He asked, who's my neighbor? And Jesus doesn't really get at it. The point is, obviously, that it can be the most unexpected person. It can be even the person we hate the most, the Samaritan. But Jesus is telling him something different. Although a neighbor can be anyone anyone and everyone around us, whether part of our so-called tribe or our so-called enemy, but this is not the right question because it automatically suggests that there are some who are our neighbor and some who aren't. When you ask, who is my neighbor, what you're really asking is, who isn't my neighbor? If I'm asking, who's my neighbor, who do I have to love as myself, well, who do I not need to love? Because that would be really convenient to know. I could allocate my time a little bit better here. I could know who I don't need to answer their phone calls anymore. I want to know. I want to know who's out. That's what he's asking. He's looking for um, exceptions to God's command. He hears this command. This command is difficult to love everyone as we love ourselves. That's a lot. I love myself a lot. He's saying, well, who do I not need to do that for? The real question is not who, but how. Jesus is saying, how can I love my neighbor? Because it's everybody, right? It's the Samaritan, it's the, it's the priest, it's everybody around us. Anyone who's there. Instead of an exception to the rule, Jesus gives him an example. 
Instead of an exception on when he doesn't need to do this, he tells him this is what it looks like to do it all the time and to everybody. The Samaritan is an unexpected example, yeah, but he's a great example of a good Samaritan. Jesus tells, go and act like that guy did. Go and do what he was doing. That's what you need to do. That's what it means to obey, to love God, and to love others. And I wonder if we do the same thing that this lawyer does, if we're looking for exceptions instead of examples. This is the question, this is the lesson that we need to take from this too. With these two commandments, love the Lord and love your neighbor, they're ours, they belong to us. This is what it means to follow Jesus, to do these two things. And we, if you're like me, I'll say I'll lump myself in as first among this. We look not for examples on how do I do this? How do I find ways? How do I find people who I can love as my neighbor? We look for exceptions to the rules. Well, not now. And not this time. And, uh, you know, I'll do it later. Exceptions. This is a part of our sinful human nature, right? It's only natural to uh, look for ways where we don't have to do something hard, where we don't have to look to obey. We instinctively look for these things, where we don't have to follow the rules when it is difficult. If I am commanded to love my neighbor, surely that doesn't mean Samaritans. I mean, we know that they're wicked. Surely this doesn't mean this person who has ruined their life, they had their chance, right? Surely this doesn't mean the people who are making me wear a mask, like, oh my gosh, that's such a high bar. Surely this doesn't mean the unvaccinated, they had their chance, right? We find all these examples of ways I don't need to be that kind of that person. We have a, what a behavioral psychologist named Jonathan Haidt calls an inner lawyer, just like this religious scholar, who is always on call to defend anything I do. He's in my mind. Anything I happen to do before I think about it, I've got my inner lawyer in my mind there to say, I'm here to defend you. Did you do something stupid? I got a reason why you did it. Not only should you have done it, but it was the best thing you could have done. And the rest of the world, they don't understand, but you were doing what you had to do. Um, did I disobey in this sense? Did I tell a lie? Well, I was under a lot of stress. I had a lot of reasons why. I probably wasn't my best moment, but I, still, I did what I could. Um, did I uh, neglect my responsibilities? Well, I've had a lot on my plate, and I had to allocate other things. So clearly, uh, if it pleases the court, uh, there's an exception in this case. I want this case thrown out, right? We have this lawyer who is always explaining what we're doing. We are always looking to justify ourselves, looking to justify what we do and the ways that we fall short, just like this lawyer who spoke with Jesus. He looked to justify himself, and in our sinfulness, that we are constantly justifying ourselves. We're constantly trying to prove ourselves righteous, to prove ourselves worthy, no matter what we've done. We lower the bar. We become defensive because we want to be righteous. We want to be right on our own merits. Jesus doesn't give us exceptions. He gives us an example to follow after. He concludes the parable by telling the listener to go and do the same. We must search for real, concrete ways to live out whole person love of God and love of neighbor. We're not looking for ways to get out of it. We're looking for ways to do it more and more and more. It should excite us. We should look at this merciful, compassionate Samaritan as a picture of what our lives should be as followers of Jesus. We look for our own examples to follow. Church, you can look around this room and you can see your neighbor. You can see people who we have been given by God's providence to belong to the same local church. These are people who God has put on our lives as examples of how to love our neighbor. 
We can look around. We can find someone we know who shows this, who loves other people, who sacrifices their rights and their time and their effort to love other people, and we can follow in their example. We can look with excitement for the opportunities. How do I love the people in this room? How do I meet their needs? How do I come alongside them and know them, really know them, and let them know me? We can look at our own, uh, our biological families, our, our spouse, our, our parents, our children, our siblings, our friends. These are the people God has given us to love and to care for and to sacrifice for. We can look at your school that you go to or your job, the people who are in your life each and every day. They are the opportunities that God has given us to go and do likewise, to go and show mercy and compassion and love. Living as disciples of Jesus means we never ask how little we can do, how few people we can love, how few people we can care for, how many of my own rights I can hold on to. Instead, we're looking, how much can I give away? How much can I sacrifice? How many people can I care for? How many of my own rights and privileges can I leave behind? When we follow the way of Jesus, our ultimate example, as one who humbled himself to save other people. And we can follow these examples freely, joyfully even, not as an obligation or a burden, because we do not need to justify ourselves. We don't need to feel this temptation like the lawyer did to make ourselves righteous, because we can't do it. But even better yet, we've already been made righteous if we are followers of Jesus. With we are in Jesus, we do not need an inner lawyer pleading our case because we have a divine advocate who stands before the Father and declares us not guilty. We don't have to waste the words on the argument. Jesus is there pleading our case, forgiving us according to his blood spilled on the cross. We are made righteous by Jesus' righteousness. So we can rest because he saved us by his grace. And from this faith in what Jesus has done, we can love our neighbor freely and joyfully. Right love leads to right living. When we love God, when we are justified and saved by him through grace, by by grace through faith, we can live rightly. If we love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, then nothing is left for exceptions. Right? There's no room. God has it all. It all belongs to him. So just, where can I go? How can I do it more? This leads us to ask the right questions, right? Not only of this parable, but also of our life. We don't ask who, because we know that it's everyone, everywhere. We don't ask when, because we know that it's always. We don't ask where, because it's everywhere, everywhere we might be. Instead, we just ask how. How have you given me an opportunity to love other people today, Lord? How have you given me an opportunity to follow Jesus by loving you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Faith must act. If it is real and it is living, then it will express itself in love. It will show fruit. And there are warnings about this. James 2.17 says, So also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. We can affirm all the right things. We can have all the knowledge of the law and what it teaches. But if it doesn't do anything, if it doesn't act, if it doesn't move, then it's probably dead. So we look for genuine examples of love to follow. We look for new ways to do good. Romans 12, 10, uh, Paul tells us to love one another with brotherly affection and to outdo one another in showing honor. He's not saying make this a competition and like say, ha ha, I beat you today. No, he says just always be looking. Always be looking for new ways to show the love to other people, to receive it with others and to, and to pass it along. 
Always be looking for new ways of obeying what God has given us, of loving others as we love ourselves, of placing our rights and preferences second. Jesus highlights here two ways we can do this, compassion and mercy. Compassion is the feeling of sympathy, right? It's when we feel um, sympathy towards another person and what they're going through. We enter into their pain, if you will. We, we, we go in and we hurt with them when they are hurting. We feel the, the brokenness that they might be feeling, whatever it might be. And then mercy is putting that compassion into action. It's acting out of our compassion for those people. It means um, empathy, really. It means to be able to look at a person and try and understand them so that we can help them. Even people who are radically different than us. It's easy with people we know, who think like we do, who believe the same things we do. It's hard to show empathy and compassion and mercy to those we disagree with in every possible way. And I feel like in our world today, we have front and center all of the many ways that we disagree with most other people, right? Those things are front and center. They're getting thrown in our face all the time. Empathy is difficult in this case. But this is the example we have to follow. Empathy and compassion leading to mercy. And both of these, empathy and mercy, they come first from God. God is the one who showed compassion on us in our sin, in our just utter lostness, when we didn't know our right hand from our left. When we were stumbling around in darkness trying to justify ourselves, he showed compassion on us when he didn't have to. God is the one who showed mercy on us when he entered into our circumstance, when he became human so that he could die in our place and restore us to new life. Jesus is the ultimate example of compassion and mercy come to life. So disciples of Jesus get to take what we've been given, the compassion and mercy of God, and give it to other people. This is just one of the many examples we can have of what it means to go and to do likewise. Now, before we close today, I think we should notice one other piece of this parable, and that is it highlights the unexpected. It highlights the unexpected. For anyone listening, a, a, a Levite or um, a priest would have been the people they all expected to do the right thing. They're the righteous people. They're the religious people, right? They're the good people. They should do what what we're expecting. They should be following um, and obeying and, and showing compassion and mercy, right? They should be the examples of right living, but that's not always the case. In this case, it's not. In this case, it's the Samaritan who we would expect to be wrong in every way. The person we would never expect to do anything right, to be an example of what it means to follow God rightly. This is still true in our world as well. We always have expectations built in on who we think might be a good example of, of who we are in this equation, don't we? It's not always what we expect. There are those who seem to be miles away from God's kingdom who are actually very near. And there are those who seem to be there who are actually very far. Jesus speaks about this unexpected nature of God's kingdom just a few verses before this parable in Luke 10, 21 and 22. He says this, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone who the Son chooses to reveal himself. The way of Jesus, he says, is hidden from the wise and understanding. Sometimes the religious scholar, the Ph.D. in Old Testament, doesn't know Jesus. This should be a warning from any time we try and measure up, any time we try and justify ourselves as those who are righteous 
as those who are following in the way of Jesus. It should be a warning. We cannot rely on our own understanding. The best of our intellect, the best of our minds, the best of our efforts will not bring us to the kingdom of God. They will not bring us to inherit eternal life. The way of Jesus, he tells us, is revealed to little children. Little children who run to their father because he's their dad. Who just run arms open, just trusting completely, knowing, I know you have me. I don't understand it all. I don't know exactly what to do, but I'm just going to run to you because I love you. We only come to the Father through Christ. We only love rightly through Christ. And we only know rightly how to live through Christ. So church, I would say today, run to Jesus in childlike faith and ask him and plead with him to show us the way, to reveal to us that we might have wisdom and understanding Let's ask Jesus to show us himself so we might know him more. So we might love him with our whole heart and soul and mind and strength because we can't get there without him coming to us. Church, let us ask Jesus to show us how to live, to show us these examples, to open our eyes as he opened the eyes of this scribe to see what it means to go and do likewise. We should ask for his Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth, to keep us walking in step with the Spirit so that we can love our neighbor as ourselves. And we have this sure promise that God will not withhold himself from those who come in faith. God will not hold back when we come before him in childlike faith and ask to understand and to know. So we close today. We say disciples of Jesus are formed by right love for right living. Right love for right living. As disciples, we love God with our whole being, which leads us to love others freely and joyfully. And so with this in mind, church, let's ask the right questions as we walk out today. Not how much can I hold back or who can I ignore. Instead, let's ask, who can we love and serve this week? How much can I give up to follow Jesus? How can we dive in with our whole being, nothing held back, into a lifetime of loving God and loving our neighbor with everything that we are. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that in our darkness, in our limitations, in our sin, you provide wisdom. You provide illumination and answers. You show us who you are, and you show us how we can live. Father, I pray you would meet each and every one of us here today right where we are. You would help us to go to whatever that next step is to know you and love you just a little bit more. And then, Father, I pray you would help us to ask the right questions of our life and take whatever that small step is forward. Who can I love? Who have you put in my life this week that I can show the love and the compassion and the mercy of Jesus to? And Father, I pray that you would make us a local church, a family of believers who are known by our love. That people would look at us and say, they have been with Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.